0: Hey everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. As always, I am so thankful and grateful that you're tuning in, downloading, and listening to the episodes. It means a lot. And before we get to today's episode, I just have one programming note. This Saturday, which is September 23rd, It is the second annual Women in PT Summit, and it takes place in New York City. All of the in-person tickets at this point are gone, but we do have a great virtual option for only $59. You get entrance into a private Facebook group where we're going to live stream all of the talks all day. And if, let's say, you're busy on Saturday and you can't watch it live, not to worry. The videos will be up for like ever, so you can watch them whenever you want. But if you're there on Saturday, we're going to have someone stationed on the Facebook page. You can ask questions. You can interact with the speakers um, all day long, so it's a really great option, and our speakers are pretty amazing. Our two keynote speakers are Dr. Sharon Dunn, the president of the American Physical Therapy Association, and New York Times bestselling author of the book, The Leadership Gap, Lolly Daskal. So we're really excited, and then we've got a ton of other amazing physical therapists talking about leadership and encouraging women to speak up and encouraging leadership for our students and for our young clinicians and for our seasoned clinicians. So it's really, it's for everyone. If you're a man, we encourage you to tune in and to watch because it's, yes, to help encourage leadership in women, but also for the men that support them because we can't do anything alone. We need everyone's support here. So consider... Grabbing a virtual ticket at womeninptsummit.com. Okay, today's episode is the first part of a two-part series, this week and next week, on e-health and where does physical therapy fit into the landscape of e-health. So today, I was very excited to be joined by Dr. Osman Ahmed. He is a lecturer in physiotherapy at Bournemouth University in England and also works for For the Football Association in England as a physiotherapist within their elite disability football program. He graduated from the University of Nottingham in 2002 and worked clinically until commencing his PhD in 2008 at the University of Otago in New Zealand on the topic of concussion in sport with a focus on social media and concussion. Since completing his PhD, he has published and presented widely in the fields of concussion and e-health, social media healthcare. And I met Oz because he was a presenter on social media and e-health at the IOC uh, conference back in March. And I basically feel like I pestered him enough until he came on. And I'm really glad he did, because this was a great episode. So we talk about social media propagating myths about concussions, why healthcare providers should be engaging in e-health initiatives, challenges within concussion management for disability populations, and the important role journalists play in disseminating knowledge about concussion in the mainstream media, and a lot more. It was a great episode, and I really want to thank Oz for taking the time out to come on, and I hope you all enjoy. Hey, Oz, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you on.
1: Thanks very much for having me on, Karen. Happy to be here.
0: All right. So, can you talk a little bit more about your research and what you're doing, kind of fill in the gaps from the bio that I read in the intro?
1: Yeah, so a large portion of my concussion research has been, like, been related to social media and concussion and the respective roles that they play. Um, that's probably been stimulated a little bit from my own personal interest in the area. I'm quite an early adopter for um, technological innovations such as facebook and twitter and those sort of things and i've had accounts for all of the major social networking sites from quite an early age um just out of curiosity really to see how they work um and certainly seeing how social media is playing a massive role in society at all levels both at healthcare level and at a societal level i thought that might be a good uh segue into looking into the intersection between the two really so um, one of my major areas of research was my PhD studies where we looked at Facebook and social media. Um, first uh, involvement with that was looking at how Facebook was being used by people, looking at how it was being used back in 2009. And we just took a descriptive overview of the existing Facebook concussion groups that were out there and we're quite surprised. I mean Facebook was only about three or four years old at the time but there were quite a few groups out there that were quite heavily populated and quite active with different consumers different individuals on there that were sharing stories and seeking support there seemed to be quite a big market for unmet support from individuals with a concussion from parents of people with a concussion and it seemed like that was a platform that they were going to to try and get a bit more information and guidance from there obviously there's ethical issues associated with the use of social media for any health condition really and certainly for something like concussion where you're potentially thinking about vulnerable populations so people that are possibly under 16 um, people that are currently going through quite in-depth emotional changes as a result of their concussion. So we wanted to make sure that we did things ethically the right way. So we did quite a few um, ethical explorations of different avenues and making sure that what we were planning to do for an intervention using social media was actually a legitimate way of doing it. Um, And we were quite happy in the end that we did come to a rational and, and fair way of doing that. We also looked at how concussion websites are being used. So we published that in the British Journal of Sports Medicine and we found there was a huge variance in the quality and the content and the information that was being posted on these concussion-related websites. So this is back in 2010, so um, around the time of SCAT 3. I think that was um, on the horizon then. Um, Sorry, SCAT 2. I've got that wrong. SCAT 2. Uh, And a lot of the information that was being shared then was just, horrifying really. Uh, and being In, bit up in what people.
0: way? Like what, in what way were things being shared that were so missing the mark?
1: Um, just complete absence of any medical involvement. Um, stuff like graded return to play was clearly not present on a lot of the websites that we were looking at. Um, and the whole discussion around concussion really was not very evidence-based or scientific or certainly the state that we're at now in 2017 where it's a lot more um, beneficial I think to the patients the conversations that we're having that wasn't the case back then um, so we wanted to build upon that and create a concussion intervention using social media that obviously did tap into good resources and even though it was a small pilot study for the purposes of my PhD I think we managed to do that and it was quite well received by the individuals that um, used it. Facebook pilot study. So we called it Icon, which is interactive concussion management. Um it was published in the Journal of Athletic Training, JAT, and we uh took a small cohort from New Zealand, which is where the PhD was conducted. Um I was lucky to have Professor John Sullivan, Professor Tony Snyders, and um Paul McCrory, who's obviously one of the main people uh involved with the concussion consensus statement groups. Um and they guided me through the process through my PhD studies. And yeah, it was a, a nice intro really into E-health and uh, all the different possibilities that it has within social media. And from that, there was a number of follow up studies that we looked at and we tried to explore some of the relationships that people are having using social media and concussion and try and find out how they're being used. So we looked at YouTube. um, We looked at the information that was being shared through there. A lot of the information that we found wasn't regulated. We found there was a huge gap between the information that was out there and the people that were posting it. Um, hospitals weren't really using it. Clinics weren't really using it. Healthcare organizations weren't really using it. Quite often if it was individuals. Or so it was I was going to say, were. who's
0: using it then?
1: Yeah, so it was really, really unregulated, decentralized, um, which in a way is good because obviously that's one of the powers of social media. It's user-generated content. Individuals from all over the world are able to tap into it and access it. But we saw this as a missed opportunity in an extent because if you've got a very, very powerful platform, a search engine like YouTube that... Um, I I don't know the numbers off the top of my head at the moment, the amount of people that are looking at per day but there are vast, vast, vast numbers of people that are using it as a resource and if you've not taken the time as a a healthcare organisation to use that as an avenue for people to look into, I think you're really missing a trick there. Um, So that was interesting we also looked at Twitter quite early on looked at concussion related tweets um, and obviously now I'd be really interested to see if the study was run again. We ran that back in 2010 and I think seven years on and that no, volume of tweets would be almost impossible to uh, to get through per day, certainly with concussion being as higher um, profile topic as it is. I think there'd be a lot more tweets out there than there was when we looked at them. Um, we also looked at Instagram, Flickr and Pinterest um, and looked at how concussion was represented on there. And that was really interesting, a lot of different perspectives are being shared on there, some of them that were in keeping with the best practice guidelines, so people that were taking photos of themselves in the ER or in different healthcare settings that were showing that they were getting medical treatment and follow-up following their concussion, equally other people that were uh, having a good uh, party the same night as their concussion or just doing things that you can clearly tell are not appropriate for somebody to do the same day as a concussion. so yes, yeah, so that's a really interesting snapshot there as well. And we also looked at concussion related apps. So we know that smartphones, as well as being used for social media, are being used for um, smartphone apps as well. So people are actually buying content that they can use to either get information from or to help guide their return to play and to help their management. So we did a systematic review of them. And I mean, I'm quite happy that that's a methodology that's growing. It seems like a lot of areas of healthcare are actually taking a systematic review traditional inclusion exclusion criteria all the frameworks that we're used to seeing in the scientific literature and adapting it in a 21st century context looking at smartphone apps now and hopefully the more of the systematic reviews are done both in sports medicine physiotherapy and in other healthcare domains the more patients and clinicians are going to be comfortable with which apps are good for the patients and which apps are good for them and which apps are not good um, and which apps shouldn't be on the market.
0: Looking at your research from six, seven years ago and to where social media has evolved over that time, do you feel that the representation of concussion and concussion management has gotten better or worse in the the social media realm?
1: Well, that's, that's a good question. I think now we're at a position where there's more informed stakeholders that are engaging with these social media platforms. To provide some balance and stability within the arguments that are out there. I think certainly early on a lot of the conversations that were taking place were not balanced, shall we say, were not rational um, and didn't have expert opinion that were guiding them. I think now certainly because platforms such as Twitter and obviously Facebook as well are more populous amongst all levels of society rather than just the sort of Generation uh, X, I think it's X or Y, Generation X, Generation X, um, the younger generation that were the early adopters. I think now more or less everybody is involved Mm -hmm. with some social media platform to some extent. Um, But I think the challenge is going to be social media is not going to stay the same. Social media is going to evolve. Social media may even fizzle out and die and there might be something that replaces it. But certainly a lot of the new areas that are coming along like Snapchat, it's a case of, I think, the healthcare profession and the medical profession thinking of ways that they can engage with users because really we have to go to the platforms that people are using we can't shy away from them and say well, i don't really know too much about snapchat i can't really go there that's not really an option i don't think i think we have to engage patients where they are um be au fait with the technology be able to interact with them at their level where they are and hopefully help them and guide them With their healthcare needs. So at the moment, I'm working as a physiotherapy lecturer over in the UK, and we ran a trial last year of using Snapchat to supplement some of our teaching sessions that we did with the undergraduate students. So, in the first year, when they're taking a lot of their anatomy and physiology classes, what we'd do is we'd take some snaps either during or after the classes to reinforce and cement some of the ideas that we did within the session. And certainly that was well received because of the Familiarity of the students with the platform. They're on Snapchat all the time, so if we send a snap through, we know they're going to look at it. They might even talk about it with their friends. That will help with their pedagogy and understanding and learning of it.
0: And that's do you I think, think it's Do you think that that's something that as a healthcare practitioner, whether you're a physio or a doctor or athletic trainer, do you feel like utilizing social media? Let's whether it be Snapchat or Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or what have you. Do you feel like utilizing that more often with your patients is would be something that gets a greater buy-in from the patient? Or has, has that not been studied as
1: much? Um, I don't know if there's been any studies that have actually looked at buy-in, as you say, from the patient. But I think certainly if you're familiar with the platforms that the patients are using and you as whatever healthcare professional you are, are able to share information in a way that they can access, digest and hopefully act upon to bring about some form of behavioural change that will benefit them with their health. I think that can only be a good thing. I I can't really see any negatives from that. Obviously, the ethical issue is really important. The fact that we have to adhere to our healthcare profession, whichever guidance and uh, regulatory body we're under, certainly in the Mm -hmm. UK, it's a Chartered Society of Physiotherapy. So they've got a social media working conduct uh, guidance document that we would follow and obey and um, adhere to and all the rest of it. But I think provided that's done in an ethical way, I don't really see too many, uh, too many negatives from that, Mm -hmm. to be honest.
0: Yeah, too many barriers to that. And within your research, do you have an idea of how many, even let's say larger healthcare systems? are using social media to benef- to the benefit of concussion patients?
1: Certainly in the UK, very few. Um, I've, I've said it quite a few times at different conferences that I go to that I certainly think that we in the UK are far behind America and Canada with regard to our concussion management. So I'd say we are not using it very effectively over here in England at the moment. With regard to the US and Canada, I think I have seen some good examples.
0: And Because I think oftentimes with big organizations or even with individuals, I think there is a little trepidation kind of putting information out onto social media. Um, Mm. Do you have any advice for people who may be a little gun shy?
1: I would see if you can get a mentor, um, which may often might be a teenager that you know, um, or certainly younger, maybe an undergrad student. If you work in a university, Uh, don't be shy to speak to them and say, look, I don't really know what I'm doing. Can you show me what to do here? I think that's a really useful thing to do. Um, I also think that the medical community should work more closely with marketing teams and those sort of people that have got these digital literacy skills that we don't inherently have. I certainly think that having some sort of fusion between the two groups there can only lead to more understanding from a medical point of view and a better uptake and utility of those sort of platforms. What we're trying to do with my students at the moment is embed a social media literacy element to the program. So we've got them involved in doing the Twitter takeover. So they now host all of the content that we share through our platform on a rotational basis of 10 days each so that they've got exposure in a real world setting of sharing that information out there. And we also teach some elements through the course to make sure that they know the platforms that patients are gonna be using both now and in the future to give them the confidence so that when they graduate, they're able to meet the patients where they are. So I think making sure that the new generation of people that are coming through have got those skills and confidence to be able to go there.
0: That's yeah,
1: important.
0: That's great. And especially at a university level. I don't think I've heard of other universities doing that. So that's pretty cool.
1: Oh, I've got a page with you too. There's a uh, Dr. Bercy Mesko in Hungary. I'm quite heavily shaped by some of his ideas and thinking he's a fantastic man. So if anybody wants to find out more about digital health and e-health, he's, a, he's an absolute guru. And he first started the medical uh, university in Budapest and he embedded a social media module within their medical curriculum. And they were the first university in the world to do that. Um, so we're trying to replicate that to a small degree at our university with social media proficiency within physiotherapy. It was quite good last year we had an undergraduate conference when a lot of the students went away and they had to develop an innovation in physiotherapy and it was pleasing to see a lot of them looking at social media platforms so one of them created a Twitter account that was going to be used for continuing professional development by physical therapists and that has been uptaken by the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy. So her research actually has real-world impact. Other people were talking about using Instagram for health promotion, um, smartphone apps for Osgood slatters, all these different ideas that were coming through. So it's great to see students infused by it, coming up with ideas, and hopefully they're going to be future leaders of our profession and be able to tap into a lot of these resources.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. I know that there's other part other parts of the sort of concussion puzzle, if you will, that Mm. we can touch upon. Uh, I know you work closely with soccer, disability and soccer. How does all that kind of fit together with disability and concussion and
1: in sport? Okay, so um, I've been quite lucky. Since 2003, I've been involved in disability soccer in the UK. Uh, First started with amputee football, where players play without the prosthesis with their elbow crutches. And then moved into cerebral palsy soccer. And that first started back in 2007. And I travelled with the team to the Beijing Paralympics in 2008. So I found it really, really interesting how players with quite marked physical deformities, um, in some instances, were able to play at a really high level of football. And certainly a lot of the injuries that I got there were a lot more challenging than I'd seen in major um, able-bodied players that I've worked with. But with concussion, obviously a big part of the problem is when you're looking at baseline scores, for people that have already got pre-morbidities how can you expect the baseline scores to be comparable to those in mainstream athletes so dr richard wheeler who i work with at the football association he's currently undertaking his phd in the area of concussion in disability soccer and uh, he did a study published in the clinical journal of sports medicine last year where we looked at baseline scores in a range of disability soccer players. So there are CP athletes, they were blind, they were deaf, uh, they were partially sighted as well, I think, and compared the baseline scores from them, their normative values to those of unimpaired individuals in mainstream sport. And obviously they're going to differ because if you've got an individual with cerebral palsy, it's to reason his tandem gait isn't going to be as good. And if that's one of the markers that you're looking at to govern return to play, Um, then that's quite a big deal. Things like finger to nose for a blind person, obviously that's going to be quite challenging. Um, So all these different things that we use for concussion recognition and for concussion assessment, they're not really appropriate for the disabled population. So that was part of the point that we are making from that study. Another study that we looked at, we also wanted to find out what clinicians that were working with these individuals with a disability thought about concussion and what they knew about concussion because obviously concussion management would you'd like to hope vary for somebody that's already got a pre-existing mobility such as a head injury so within cerebral palsy soccer you've got people that are playing that have had a cva that have got congenital cp or might have a traumatic brain injury now if you've got somebody that's eligible for a sport because they've had a major head injury and then they get concussed it stands to reason that you'd like to think there'd be an adaptive or slightly different return to play protocol, a more elongated, a more conservative approach to return to play than there would from an unimpaired individual. Um, But it was quite eye-opening to see that a lot of the clinicians involved, A, hadn't heard of either the SCAT-3 or any concussion tools that were out there. And B, also hadn't really thought or knew too much about any adaptations that could occur with that. So I think there's a big, uh opportunity to enhance the care for athletes with a disability when it comes to concussion in sport it was pleasing in berlin in october at the latest consensus meeting to see that raised um and hopefully there'll be more research into that area in the future yeah
0: so then how do you decide their return to play if you have let's say one of your players in your cp league has a concussion how do you then decide when they're ready to return to play
1: Um, We we do follow, obviously, SCAT 5 and um, the Football Association in England has has released some new concussion guidance as well, which we also follow. Um, But as with all concussion management, it's all very individualised and on an individual perspective. Happy to say we've not seen too many in the last couple of years, so we've not had any real-world examples to look at and use. But I think certainly for an individual with a pre-existing TBI or a CVA that sustains a concussion would certainly manage him a lot more conservatively than I would with an individual that had no history of concussion and no history of TBI.
0: Yeah, and that makes sense. And you had mentioned the SCAT a couple of times. I just want you to Mm. let people know what that is in case people listening are like, why does he keep saying SCAT and what does that mean?
1: (laughs) Sorry, yeah, the SCAT is um, the sports concussion assessment tool and there have been different iterations of it over time. Uh, The most recent iteration was a SCAT 5.0. That was released earlier this year. That came from the consensus group meeting back in October in Berlin, in Germany. Yeah.
0: Oh, and I was going to say, just so people know, we'll have a link to it in the show notes as well. So if you're unfamiliar with it, we will link to it. We sort of talked about social media and concussion, disability, sport, and concussion. And n- let's dive into the mainstream media and concussion. Because as we were talking before we went on the air, I said, you know. It, Sometimes the mainstream media will call it a bump on the head and then it'll swing so far to the other side of the pendulum that it's, you know, it, catastrophic injury. So what what can people what should people think when they're reading reports from mainstream media on concussions that it, there's it can't be both. It can't be just a bump on the head and catastrophic at the same time. So where where is there a middle ground that we need to be? cognizant of?
1: Yeah there is a middle ground and I think the middle ground will come from having a better informed better educated population and pool of journalists. Um, I think at the moment it's very difficult because journalists have got a great deal of power to share information to a wide audience of people that are sports mad that are interested in concussion because of what's going on at the moment and certainly when you've got uh, as you said some very imbalanced opinions that are coming through quite strongly in the media it's very different for the layperson to look at that be able to digest that certainly if they don't have the background information to be able to put all the resources together and make a balanced opinion themselves with regard to what to do i'm not really sure i mean we looked at uh, online news stories uh, in 2016 i did some work with Professor Eric Hall at Elon University in North Carolina. And we analysed a lot of the online news stories that are out there related to concussion and found all sorts of different words that were being used. um, Phrases such as blow to the head, knock to the head, ding. um, And then obviously the more serious words such as brain injury um, that you kind of are not too worried about seeing because that reflects the magnitude of the injury and how it's being used. From that, we came up with a media concussion checklist, which we hoped would help to guide journalists through that process of knowing a bit more about concussion, checking the article that they've written to make sure that they're not saying anything erroneous with regard to return to play and concussion management and all the other things related to that. Um, And ultimately, I think it would be quite nice if there was a process whereby sports journalists were able to go somewhere for a short period of time, um, maybe an online module, I'm not sure, um, find out more about concussion so that they know all the best practice evidence, best practice guidance, so that they can't say... Uh, John Doe's had a concussion and he's going to get back to sport in two days time because obviously we know that if you manage correctly that shouldn't be the case and that shouldn't happen so I think education is great across the board I think with concussion I think most people are in agreement that better educated clinicians are going to be able to treat concussions better, better educated parents Are going to be able to manage their kids' symptoms better. Better educated players are not going to push themselves to go back until they're symptom free. So I think that education role can also translate across to journalists because they do have such a big reach and they can impact on so many people.
0: Yeah, and I think where I see it as so problematic, and you touched upon it, was parents of children with concussions. You know, so if parents of children who are diagnosed with a concussion don't understand, the severity of the concussion, I think it's just a ding. Yeah. It's a problem.
1: Yeah. And equally, I think the problem extends the other way as well. Mm-hmm. I think, I um, know obviously there's an issue in the US and uh, with the heading of soccer balls as well for younger people. That That's not something we've got here at the moment in the UK. That is something that possibly could come along in the future as well. Um, and I think rule changes such as that can potentially be a good thing. I'm kind of on the fence with the heading issue in US soccer at the moment, but um, certainly any rule changes that help people to be safer and help kids to have a healthier brain should be applauded. Having said that, it's the fear factor that comes with it as well and um, the paranoia and the worry that my little Johnny shouldn't play whatever sport, soccer, rugby, hockey, whatever it is, um, because they're going to end up with CTE. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think at the moment, some of the fear factor is coming through quite strongly in the media that I think is dissuading many people from participating in sport um, because of the fear of potential risks. And I don't think necessarily that's a healthy position to be in. I think better educated public is a better position to be in, um, but more fearful public. I'm not so sure whether that's a beneficial thing or not, to be honest. Um, but yeah like I say I, th- I think the media aspect as a whole is really interesting we looked at concussion and comedy a few years back uh there was an episode of South Park that came out about uh, I think it's called Sarcastable um so it was quite football focused to do with the NFL and we picked up on a few other comedy shows that were also talking about concussion and using it and again we made the point that some comedy shows portray it in a way that demeans it and belittles it and Uh, makes it out to be not that much of a big deal whereas potentially comedy shows could be another vehicle if they were talking about managing injury correctly um, that could be very very helpful certainly with the reach that they have and the fact that subliminally people will be watching it and think well hang on a minute Dwight from the office had a concussion and he had to go and see a doctor I should go and see a doctor as well that could potentially be a good thing as well I think the other thing as well that would be really nice to see embedded in the future would be into video games as well. Um, mm. Certainly for sporting video games, it'd be great if there was a way that there was more kind of involvement with concussion education through the sport. So, for example, if I don't know if it's Madden or something mm-hmm. like that and players collide if there was a little flash up saying something about did you know that you can only return to play after being screened by a doctor, etc." I think little nuggets like that, all these things chip away at people's um, understanding and knowledge and they all help having drip, drip, drip effect to hopefully govern how they manage that injury further down the line.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. And, you know, as far as media is concerned, if you're someone who, if your child has suffered a concussion or you have suffered a concussion and you read something, is there, is the best way to find out if this article is accurate to kind of go to google scholar or to go to maybe a a website like the mayo clinic or the cleveland clinic which are big clinics here in in the u.s to try and get more information on it to see if this is correct
1: yeah I, i think that'd be really good i think if any parents are listening and um they do read a report about um superstar having a concussion in a major sport or something like that always go and look at sites like CDC or like you say Mayo Clinic or somewhere else because they're going to be the places that you know the information is going to be top-notch there's going to be no biases associated to it it's going to be written by medical people that know what they're talking about so I think cross-referencing anything that you read um, through papers is going to be a good thing but like I say ultimately it'd be great if we had a really really well-educated community Mm -hmm. of journalists out there that are pushing really high quality news reports out there that are interesting to read from a sports perspective but also factually correct with regard to um, concussion knowledge. Okay
0: is there anything in the UK Where um, they're focusing on concussion, so maybe concussion perspectives, concussion um, guidelines or anything like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, concussion has been a big deal for all UK sports in the last few years. Um, Rugby have been quite proactive, I think, in the UK. They've taken the lead and had a lot of different initiatives, including the head case initiative, which has been quite well received. Uh, The Football Association, they've also had to create their own set of guidelines to meet the needs and demands of the general public because there's been a lot of focus on the extent of concussion in professional football. Unfortunately, there's been a few high-profile incidents where concussion has possibly not been managed as well as it possibly could have been. Um, There have been manager quotes attributed from top flight Premier League managers that, again, probably haven't helped the concussion dialogue in a very constructive way. So concussion over here at the moment is a big deal. Um, people are talking about it, people are looking at it, people are researching into it. Um, and hopefully eventually, like I say, we will catch up the USA and Canada with regard to how we manage it and how we um look after it.
0: And in your opinion, where where can people go for best resources?
1: In the UK or globally?
0: Uh globally.
1: Globally. Um tough question that karen um i i generally always look towards uh non-profit uh governmental organizations because generally if you're in a country that has got a structured healthcare system then the information that those guys are providing to you is generally going to be quite unbiased and quite accurate and quite useful um just be careful of individuals that have got vested interests and certain needs certainly we haven't at the moment got the model of concussion clinics here in the uk um but i know from speaking to some of my north american colleagues that with some concussion clinics there is a commercial bias underpinning it Um, and there might be ulterior motives for the number of treatments that you're required to have etc etc we've got the us uh, we've got the nhs in the uk here so we don't have those sort of elements at the moment although we are starting to see more concussion clinics crop up um there's a few that are scattered around the uk at the moment and i'm sure given a few more years there's going to be even more um that are going to be private centers set up to help manage the injury um but yes yeah, certainly i think in terms of information stick to mainstream sources that are most likely to know what they're talking about and have the experience to be able to guide you
0: yeah, that makes sense. And now we have just a couple more questions as we sort of run out of time. But my first question is, and I probably, sh- I'll, I probably should have prepped you on the second one ahead of time, but I forgot, okay. So, but no we'll problem. give you the first one first. So if yeah. you were to kind of take what we talked about today, what would be some major talking points that you'd want to leave the uh, listeners with?
1: Major talking points I want to leave the listeners with? Um, I would want listeners to consider where if they're a clinician where their patients are going to for their healthcare information so what social media platforms are they using making sure that you're familiar with those platforms as well so you can engage with the patient on their level and talk to them about those sort of things um i'd also want to make sure that if you're a clinician that you're thinking about smartphone apps that patients might be using um and if, if you're a patient or just um normal guy on the street that you're thinking about using these sort of things because there's a lot of really good smartphone apps that are out there that can help people with different healthcare conditions as well um, and probably just think about where you get your information from I'm quite careful with the newspapers that I read for current affairs and those sort of things because uh, I think sources of information really govern everything that go on and it'd be great if people thought about their healthcare information in a similar way so thinking about who's providing this information to me have they got an agenda um, what's their end game? Should I really be reading this or not? And I think quite often we don't really think about that enough. We get sucked in, certainly with websites, by the jazzy banner and some flashing lights and some interesting font. Um, before we know it, we're looking down that. We've clicked on a few links. I think thinking about what the information is and where it's coming from is really important.
0: Yeah, and I think that's all great points. Okay, so last question, and this is a question I ask everyone, is knowing where you are now, in your career and in your life what advice would you give yourself as a new grad straight out of physio school
1: oh that's a really good question yeah. um make the most of every opportunity you've got and volunteer for lots of things um certainly i've volunteered for quite a few things that. I've got absolutely nothing out of in the short term, but long term have ended up into very valuable opportunities and um, have snowballed into things that I couldn't even imagine. I mean, last year I was lucky enough to go to the 2016 Paralympic Games in Rio um, and that was a fantastic experience. And that all came off the back of doing about three years volunteer work every Saturday, standing in the rain, driving minibuses carrying around dirty kit. Um, so again, just volunteer for as much as you can. Speak to people, be friendly, be nice, be polite. I mean, sports medicine, physio, certainly is a very small world. Um, big egos don't really go too far. Um, and I think being nice and humble and grounded, I think is really important. And certainly the people that I've met, that I've been most impressed with at the top of the profession have also quite satisfyingly been the nicest. Um, they've always made time. They, look at you they when they're talking they remember your name they all those little things there that make a huge difference um it's nice to see that people that are at the top of the tree are good people as well
0: yeah i couldn't agree more and i think that is great advice so now if people want to find out more about what you're doing more about your research where can they find you
1: um you can follow me on twitter um my I- Name's Osman H. Ahmed. Uh, I tweet about concussion and social media stuff predominantly. Um, Or Also drop me an email. My bio is in the link, I think, um, Mm -hmm. that you've got. So um, by all means, I'm happy to carry the conversation on. So drop me an email and we can chat more.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This is all great stuff. And again, all of the stuff that we talked about today, links and everything will be on the podcast uh, website, podcast.healthywealthysmart.com under this episode. So thank you again for coming on. And everyone else, thanks for tuning in. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy and smart. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.